Welcome to Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis, your host. As a writer, speaker, and former legislator, we discuss limiting government, fiscal responsibility, and fair taxation. I'm a mother of seven and a wife of one for over three decades, so I bring you my personal experience. And now it's time for Homefront with Cynthia Davis. Homefront, another edition where we're going to talk about things that affect the family, the home, what we're fighting in this country. And looking at the landscape, a lot of people got discouraged after the November elections. They saw that there was a problem with the way we're all headed. They saw bigger government in most every level of where they had a choice. They saw more oppression, more tyranny, winning at the ballot box. And many people who are just down-to-earth, down grassroots citizens who just want their country back looked at it and asked, what, what, what is going on? Why are we seeing things get worse instead of better? So tonight we have somebody who's going to give us the answer, Doug Edelman. <laughs> has uh, written a book called Restoring a Once Great Nation. And the subtitle is, Are America's Glory Days Ahead or Are They Behind Us? So, Doug, I'd like to thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Doug, uh, it looks like you're asking a yes or no question. It says, Are America's Glory Days Ahead or Are They Behind Us? Which one is it? Well, the, the fact of the matter is the, the answer has yet to be determined. It really depends on us. And that's part of the reason why, why, why the book was written is, you know, to uh, basically uh, I, I approach it from the, from the aspect of, number one, we need to awaken people. Number two, those who are awake need to be educated. Number three, those who are educated need to be motivated. Number four, those who are motivated need to know what direction to take. We need to train them up. And we need to teach them to go ahead and recruit recruit more. I can't agree more, too, because what you say is you, as you've surveyed the landscape of America today, what you're seeing is divisiveness and strife, and we all are. I don't believe I've ever observed a country more divided and with more strife. I mean, you're not even free to bring up a topic in an elevator any longer. <laughs> True. And you know, I mean, you're not even you're not even free to eat Chick Fil A in the in, in the military anymore. <laughs> My goodness, I didn't know that. But you didn't. Oh, you didn't hear about that? No, I, <laughs> recent I don't. News, recent news items. Of course, the guy the guy was also being, you know, castigated for other things like reading Russ Limbaugh and uh, Mark Levin and things like that. But. Uh, yeah, he he got got a promotion, and as part of his promotion party, uh, uh, served Chick Fil A and got a, got nailed for that too. <laughs> My, so what you say here, and I think we all agree with you. We lament that our nation is no longer that shining light that it once was. 
Today, our economy is in a shambles. Our credit rating has experienced multiple downgrades. Instead of being the financer of the world, we're a debtor nation. Our dollar is no longer the gold standard reserve currency. Instead of self-sacrifice, we promote self-indulgence. Instead of responsibility, we promote excuses. Instead of lauding the rewards of hard work, we teach dependency and entitlement. I couldn't agree more. In fact, all those great rags to riches stories that made mm-hmm. America so fantastic, I'm not They came hearing. out of a previous generation. Yeah. Those, they were literally wearing rags and eating, uh, you know, whatever. And then they, they worked. They worked hard and they pulled themselves out of the morass. And and then they, through their ingenuity, their faith in God, their perseverance, their ability to um, connect with and have an, uh, a vision for what could be better, you're, mm-hmm. there are a lot of American stories, in fact. I remember the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. And what we love mm-hmm. so much about it is that somebody who was living in poverty and utter destitute conditions that we wouldn't even think about today did make it. Um, and, and you know what? I'm not hearing the stories today of, of people who mm-hmm. got on welfare and then, and then moved up the ladder. In fact, many of them are, I got on welfare and then I lost my drive and ambition because if I made too much money, then they'd take away a portion of my welfare mm-hmm. check and my free baby. But if I had another baby, they'd give me more. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we are looking at a culture that has already shifted right before our very eyes. I've seen... So much change in my lifetime. I was born in 1959. How about you, Doug? 56. Okay, so we're very close. So in a lot of our listeners, you know, remember those days when we went Mm -hmm. to grade school, and that was before the schools provided free lunch. And I remember when the breakfast question came up, should we give them breakfast too? And Mm -hmm. It was, well, what if they're hungry and, and then they don't learn well? So that all happened, but it never addressed the bottom line problem of what's happening to the family. So I think mm-hmm. the free breakfast came because we started doing free lunch. And, yet, you know, um, <laughs> what happened to kids being able to share with people in, in the lunchroom? I mean, I guess you could mm-hmm. say, I'm looking for a day when they're going to say well, kids aren't allowed to bring lunch anymore because they haven't gone through the FDA standards. <laughs> I, I remember the good old days when uh, most of the time you would bring a lunchbox, and on the times that you bought lunch, you'd stand in line with your quarter in your hand and get a lunch. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And uh, and it was special if you got to buy lunch. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> let me talk about you for a minute. Okay. I remember when we first met when I was in the Missouri State Legislature, and I have always seen you as a very uh, trustworthy source of people who, somebody who I felt had a grip on the philosophy of what we're doing. And Thank you. You invited me to come and speak at the Lewis and Clark Pachyderm Club, and Mm -hmm. I came because I liked to articulate the values that we all held. In fact, I felt like the message 
of the Lewis and Clark Pachyderm Club was much more conservative than the St. Charles Pachyderm Club. I just, you know, felt like people got it a little bit better, uh, what what it means. But then there was a night when I walked in, and, and you said, I'm no longer a Republican. I'm a conservative. Now, what did you mean by that? Well, uh I, I I think that was uh, that, that's that's long been a statement of mine. Uh, I, I I think that it was just articulated that particular evening. But um, what I meant by that was that uh, I you know too many people, and and especially amongst the the people who who uh, associate together in a quote Republican club, um, were Republicans. You know, the, the the party was 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 primary, and not the philosophy that formed the party in the first place. And so, uh, over time, we've seen the party uh, moving away from you know uh, most recently Reagan conservatism, but I'll just call it conservatism. Uh, and uh, you know, you 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 see the proliferation of people like uh, Lindsey Graham, or like uh, John McCain, and. Uh, about the time that McCain was rising in the ranks was when I was starting to say, you know what, the party is not representing me anymore. So I, you know, I, uh, while, uh, you know, in an election I will probably support a Republican over, you know, over the, well, I will, will certainly over a Democrat, but, uh, you know, I'll tend to vote Republican because that's the, the choice that's available most of the time. Uh, but I won't call myself a Republican. I'm not going to uh, donate to the Republican Party per se, though I may re- donate to a uh, Republican candidate who represents my views. Well, you've got a chapter called One State, Two State, Red State, Blue State, and it, it has become very divisive. It is everyone – we're in such a mentality today when mm-hmm. people feel like – what are you? You're either a Republican or a Democrat, and that defines if you're a good person or a bad person. Mm-hmm. And there's but one, there thing, is one thing. A, I lo- I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I love your question because that chapter alone explains how we've gotten to these terrible. Um, I I would call it a prejudiced attitude where where any any friend of a Democrat is a bad person and any friend of well, a Republican must be good. I don't even get that. And and beyond that is the that the traditional lines that are drawn, um, in reality they're a whole lot blurrier than one might think. You know, I I, I one thing I'd point out in that in that chapter, you know, uh, you know. Uh, Conventional wisdom will put people into different groups just by looking at them, right? Oh, you're black, you're on the left, you're white, you're on the right. You're Catholic, you're on the right. You're, uh, you know, an atheist, you're on the left. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. You're middle class, you're class, you're on the right. Or, or you're rich, you're on the right. You're, you're, you know, in a lower social class uh, or economic class, you're on the left. And, and, uh, you know, and it's not so so clear cut, you know. In the black community, you've got uh, you know folks uh, where the values of family and faith are strong, right? That's a that's that's a right leaning uh, uh, way of thinking. So you 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 know uh, you you wouldn't necessarily place them on the conservative side, but they have conservative values, 
right? Yeah, that's um, why Prop you know, 8 passed in California, because right. and, you know, Obama... You've, you've got the elderly, right? The elderly are presumed to be liberal, right? But but yet, you know, these are the guys who have the work ethic, who are frugal, who, you know, who are independent, and those are, you know, right-leaning values. You know, uh, in the Jewish community, right? Everybody knows that the Jews are on the, on the left, right? <laughs> but, you know, what what are their values? You know, family, education, hard work, success, achievement, right? And what party is usually ascribed with those values? So, you know, the, the lines are not so clear-cut when you don't throw people into identity, identity politics and you really talk about what do they really think. Yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> All I can say <laughs> is that when I was in the legislature, I did have many opportunities to, well, we had caucus frequently where we would meet and discuss what we're going to do as the Republican Party, and a lot of it was based more on gamesmanship, and if we do this, they'll do that, and then that will make them look bad, and then we'll have a victory, and then we'll talk about those lousy Democrats who are trying to ruin the country, and we're doing the right thing. Isn't that great of us? And Mm -hmm. many of them would repeat the talking points they were handed as they left to go home for the weekend. But Mm -hmm. some of us thought for ourselves and said, is this going to actually accomplish anything? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I believe that's how we've dissolved into ineffectiveness is we've become so focused on the partisan gamesmanship that we have forgotten. It's more more about, number one, winning. And 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 and, uh, and number two about about uh, gaining and keeping power, then it is about what's good for the country. You know, uh, old, an old quote which I love and quote a lot. Um, the you know a, a politician worries about the next election, a statesman worries about the next generation, and we have a whole bunch of politicians and not a lot of statesmen. Well, that's I I think. Ninety-nine percent of our audience would concur that that's really what's dragging us down. You have a chapter in your book about health care, and this is one of those topics where, you know, when I hear the Republican side of the aisle say we need to real repeal and replace, and the Democrats, no, we need to repeal are, and not replace. <laughs> <laughs> but you've heard the mantra, haven't you? <laughs> of course. They tried to no, make sure. it into a catchy slogan. And yeah, and and you know the, the the point is, you know, with the 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 problem in the in the Republican part, well, the problem in politics today, the difference between the mainstream Republicans and the re- mainstream Democrats is what they want big government to do. The difference between us and both of them is what we want government to be. The, the problem is not that big government's okay as long as they're doing our stuff. The problem is that big government isn't okay. Well, let me talk to you about hypocrisy for a minute, because on this health care issue, you remember a few years ago when Medicare Part D passed, and people at the time were saying it's the biggest government takeover of health care we've ever seen in our lifetime. And yet it was being promoted by Republicans. Now, we had George Bush 
George W. Bush for president, and we had Republican-controlled chambers, and they felt like they needed to and do Medicare. And they thought they would get more of the elderly vote. That was the problem. And yet, if the Democrats had been, if we had the same scenario where there was a Democrat president or Democrat we chambers, yeah, we would. We're not going to do Medicare Part D. What do you think you're doing? That's that's not right for government to take over a private sector industry that's functioning fine. And here's the outrageous part. I do have to tell you this quick story of what happened to me today. My father needed a prescription drug, and it was called Teflon Pearls that's, that mm-hmm. takes away your urge to cough if you yes. don't have any reason to cough. And um, they're, he, they're little miracles. <laughs> thank you. He um, <laughs> went to the hospital last week for a very serious condition called pulmonary embolism. Oh, and gosh. if you've ever had a clot in your lung, it makes you feel like you have to cough, but there's no reason to cough. And the more you cough, the more irritated you're going to make your body. And so that is a perfect ex- reason why you should take something that will really knock off your urge to cough. So yesterday, he went to the doctor and received a prescription for Teflon Pearls. I, uh, they went, my, my parents are in their 80s, they went to the pharmacy, the pharmacist told them that it would be $47. And being the good fiscal conservatives that they are, my dad thought, well, maybe I can just tough it out. And the pharmacist said, Medicare Part D does not cover this at all. I said, Mom, mm-hmm. you, maybe they didn't give you the generic or something, because they're supposed to have, generics are supposed to be $3 a month. But mm-hmm. she said, no, it was written for generic. But the pharmacist said, too bad, they're, you're going to pay full price. There's no insurance for this. I said, I know it's been out for two decades. There's got to be, the price should have come down by now. <laughs> you know, um Finally, I called. I called Walgreens and I I asked. I spoke directly to the pharmacist, and mm-hmm. I said, "Can you explain this to me?" And he said, "Yes." When Medicare Part D passed seven or eight years ago, they put a restriction in it that it would not include any cough pharmaceuticals, no no drugs that would take away a cough. And I was absolutely struck with amazement that our Republican Congress back then would have put an exclusion for cough drugs that they're not covered by Medicare. What is up with that? Were they thinking they were going to save us some you, money by letting the elderly cough themselves? Do you think they read it? They 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 didn't read. Uh... Uh, Obamacare, and they, they they generally don't read a lot of what they pass. It's pretty, I'll tell you, it's pretty reprehensible if they're going to spend that kind of money that they would say, but we're not going to cover something that could be critical and, and life-saving for somebody who is of an advanced age bracket anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm disappointed. I'm I'm appalled, frankly. I, and, you know, government, of course, I, I always knew from the beginning that it shouldn't have passed and it wouldn't have passed if it weren't for the governing party in charge trying to do something to make the other party look bad. So what 
what what do you think is the solution? Will we ever be able to roll the clock back now that we've gotten this far along with the health care? I, 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 I am not um, overly in, uh, optimistic about the uh, the country's willingness to uh, recognize that sometimes receiving goodies is not a is not a goodie is <laughs> not a good thing. Um, I, I hope that more people will awaken to the to the you know the the, the bad trade that they've made, uh, but I'm not highly optimistic on that one at this point. Uh, I think that we may be able to successfully repeal, uh, you know, Obamacare per se because it is such a, you know, a nightmare, a fool's errand, um, and you know, even the unions are starting to wake up to that fact. But uh, I, I do fear that we're probably going to replace it with something not much better. Well, it sure did. I've, I've seen the future of healthcare now that I've gone through this experience with a family member and it mm-hmm. it may be worse. All I can say well, is, is Cynthia, the, I have to tell you I, I I think that uh you know you're familiar with the Agenda twenty one, you're familiar with the UN's mandate to, to reduce the population by three billion. Um I I think that, you know, the the elderly are going to be the first target because then you know, attrition is an easy thing if you're not prolonging their lives. Um and I, I, I honestly think that we that whether it's active or or passive, we have our death panels. Well, uh, I'll tell you, it's becoming more active all the time, and I think it behooves all of us to take charge of our own health care because if you trust other people, then you're really gambling that somebody else is going to care about you and want to help you, and mm-hmm. people are well, are not motivated. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I point out in that chapter that you mentioned about uh, about uh, universal health care, mm-hmm. uh, from a strictly numbers game, it can't be made to work. You know, the, the whole idea of insurance, think about car insurance. Mm-hmm. The idea of insurance is that you, that you spread the risk across the pool of the insured. And that, you know, the good drivers who don't have a claim pay a reasonable pre- premium for their security, which in fact pays the claims of the ones who have the accidents, okay? They take in more in premiums than they pay out, yet everyone pays less than their own individual cost because there are people out there who make no claims at all, okay? In healthcare, you have a little different situation because in, when you're driving, you're going to have people who don't have accidents, the fact of the matter is everybody is going to require health care to varying degrees at varying points in their lives. And when you set up, number one, the, the expectation of first dollar payment by somebody else, the whole concept that, that, that health care is a free right and that it should be provided to you at no cost to you, is, you know, there's a myth, but that's promoted and that's accepted in the, in the, in the popular vernacular today. And then... You take, you know, you 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 have uh, either single payer or you have universal coverage. The whole idea that everybody is covered for everything from cradle to the grave. So where are they going to get the, the 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 pool of funds from which to pay? Well, we're all going to pay into it. You're spreading the risk across the the pool of the insured, right? 
Well, if mm-hmm. everybody's going to be making claims and everybody's paying in, then essentially everybody's paying for everything, and there is no insurance. You're paying for it in premium. Okay, so you're announcing tonight on the radio that there really is no insurance. Again, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're we're speaking uh, on on the uh, the theoretical here. So everybody's um, required to pay for everything. You're, you, right. Well, like I say, if, if everybody is covered, you know, and everybody's going to be make, making claims, there is no pool of people who pay premiums without making a claim. Now, there will be greater claims and lesser claims. You know, your 26-year-old healthy is going to be making less claims than your 70-year-old sick. But the fact of the matter is everybody's going to be making claims. So and the, if, the the mandate that they are going to uh, that they had to include contraception means right, right. Well, there. That, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the whole concept of government getting involved in healthcare is, is what's caused the problem in the first place. Remember back when we were young, and we'd go to the doctor, and there'd be a nice little blue cross sign on the wall. We take Blue Cross, major medical, right? And major medical meant. If you get sick and go in the hospital and have surgery, we cover it. If you go to see your doctor for a sniffle, you write a check. Right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody came along and started saying, well, you need to cover this and that. And you need, well, baby care. And you need this and that and the other thing. And the people who needed that, you know, for example, those planning a family, they said, oh, they were all for it. Those who were single were paying for it without needing it, right? The more government got involved in mandating, oh, you have to cover this exam, oh, you have to cover that, oh, you have to, you know, pay for, you know, next thing you know, they're going to be paying for gender reassignment. And who's going to pay for that? The people who aren't getting it. They already are. I have a constituent who wrote me an email who works in a pharmacy who saw that he was dispensing prescriptions to a minor and i am telling you um this is this is cruel and unusual <laughs> to make the us have to support somebody else's personal preference that's mm-hmm. that's there nobody's drawing the line i am no go ahead and finish your thought and then i'll go back <laughs> to a little history i just i'm i'm disappointed what in the contraception mandate, not because I'm worried about my own bottom line, but because I'm a mother of girls and I'm thinking that there are going to be more girls getting STDs because they think it's okay to have sex with all these boys and mm-hmm. they're, after all they're taking her on the pill and they're going to get their hearts ripped to shreds, they're going to emotionally, yeah, because, psychologically because there's no societal norm that says maybe you ought not and the more girls that are on contraception the more pregnancies there will be because you're having more sexual activity among unmarried people so right and even even if even if they're they're as as effective as advertised and they prevent pregnancy they don't prevent stds well they cause more girls to and boys to, to participate, yes. Yeah, to get engaged in, 
in the process and try and see if they can do something fun that they heard about in their classroom mm-hmm. today. And that is perpetuating a cycle where government will pay through the nose, both from sure. the beginning to end of the entire and process. Not to mention society paying the price of poor moral uh, of, a, of a moral decay. But uh, getting back I'm, I'm, to the insurance uh, history, remember I, I took us back to the days of major medical. Remember mm-hmm. what happened shortly thereafter when government got involved? Suddenly costs start rising and. Uh, Lo and behold, they need a way to start controlling costs. Enter in the 80s, the HMO, right? That's where we started saying, okay, we're going to control the care that is provided to keep the costs down. Well, there was a mass rebellion against that, as you recall. People didn't like HMOs because they told them, you have to see this doctor. You have to get permission to go see that doctor. You you can't get this covered and you can't get that covered. So they said, we, well, we want the doctor we want, the, the hospital we want, the coverage we want. We want this covered, that covered. We don't want to make, uh, uh, you know, we want first dollar coverage. Uh, you know, we, 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 we don't want to even pay to go see our doctor, you know, for, a, for an office visit. And next thing you know, you know, you're, ri- you're raising the costs of health care through the roof. And the insurance companies can't afford it, so the premiums start skyrocketing, and that's what started the whole impetus towards the single payer and the government takeover to keep because people can't afford the insurance. Well, of course they can't afford the insurance. They're wanting it to cover everything for everybody, which is a like I said, it's, it's a model that doesn't work. Right. You know. Well. You know, you it's, know it's like I, it's I, like saying I want gasoline insurance. Okay. And I want to be able to pay $50 a year to have my tank full all year. And I want everybody to pay $50 a month to have their tanks full all year. Well, unfortunately, the premiums don't cover the claims. Talk to me about the price of oil. I went to Chicago. I went to Chicago last week. And I kid you not, I saw a gas station that was selling gas for four seventy nine a gallon. Now well, what is Remember up with you that? were in not only Illinois but you were in Chicago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a goodly portion of that was in taxes, dear. However, there are so many factors that go into the price of oil, I'm surprised that they ever get a chance to calculate what the price should be before it'll change. <laughs> but uh well, for, exa- question- for example for example you know, you have, of course, the actual raw material cost, the cost of the oil, as it comes out of the wellhead, right? Mm-hmm. And that will go up and down to some degree, and it will affect the, the 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 price of the pump. But along the way, you have to ship and deliver it. And what happens when the cost of the diesel on the ship that's carrying a million barrels of oil goes up? Well, it costs more to get that oil from the Middle East over here or wherever it's coming from, right? Then once it gets here, it's crude oil. It has to be turned into something. So you've got the cost of refining, right? And yes, the retailer makes a profit, okay? About 10 cents a gallon, but they make a profit, right? Mm -hmm. The oil companies, on the average, earn about 3% profit. Can you tell me another business on the planet that can sustain itself on a 3% profit margin? No. Yet we blame them as being gouging and evil. 
Meantime, you know, for that three percent that the that the that the uh, oil companies get, there's about sixty six cents on average, depending on what state you're in, about sixty six cents per per gallon in taxes. The retailer makes three. Okay, but wait or, a or minute. Or pardon me, nine, nine on a gallon. Doug, the price, I'm not aware of any new gas taxes that have been levied since gas doubled in price. My question is, how is it, and you were there with me at the mobile station on that morning mm-hmm. when Americans for Prosperity had a deal you can buy gas yes. for $1.84 a gallon. What? Why would it? I understand taxes. I, I get mm-hmm. that you know it's ten cents here and twenty well, cents there. I don't understand it doubling the price. So are we all getting taken for fools? Uh, we are, but not by the people you would think. <laughs> like <laughs> okay, I said, the, 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 well, like like I said, let's let's follow that 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 that. Uh, that trail of the of, of a you know of a gallon of gas from the wellhead, um, the the raw material costs ha- they have gone up, but not you know let, let's see back back in the day you know say middle of the Bush administration or early Bush administration, um, gas prices were what uh, on the order of sixty to seventy dollars a barrel, and now they're pretty close to double that. When uh, the the uh, the gas price at that time was around what was it a dollar eighty, and it's roughly double that now, so that's proportional, right? Yeah. Well, actually, though, just because the raw materials went up didn't mean the labor cost to refine the raw materials necessarily doubled. Uh, uh, agreed. However. Remember too that it's not a direct, you know, uh, cost plus profit equals final price. There's also the the, uh, the the world speculation and all of that, and the price is affected by more than just supply and demand. It's uh, it's also affected by uncertainty. We've had you know a number of things causing worldwide uncertainty in the interim, but. Uh, the the probably the, the one of the bigger uh contributors is number one the uh boutique fuels the refiners have to produce a different blend for us here in Missouri than they do in Illinois and they can't sell them across state lines or across the geographic boundaries of whatever region they declare it to be for the particular mm-hmm. fuel blend I- so, for example, that. if they if they make too much of the blend that's good in Illinois, and not enough of the blend that's good in Missouri, they can't sell it over here. But the price over there will go down, and the price over here will go up because they have a glut and we have a shortage. You know, I I actually saw that. Um, anybody who wants to be a smart consumer probably knows that you can go to GasBuddy.com and look at the map and figure out mm-hmm. on a trip this is particularly helpful. 
And sure. my daughter called me about three weeks ago, and she said, Mom, the gas just jumped to 394 in the Springfield area. What's happening? And I looked it up on Gas Buddy, and sure enough, she was lucky Summer to find it. Well, actually, there was a distinct line right between Missouri and Arkansas. And yep. Arkansas was way cheaper, and there was a little spike coming up in southeastern Missouri where it was cheaper. But you could almost define state lines. The price changed within between yep. different states. And, and, and again, some, so, so for example, so like I say, if the, if the southern region had a, had a you know had enough gas. That they met supply, and it was sure a shorter uh, supply in the midwestern region. They couldn't move that southern blend up here to sell it, so it's cheaper down there than it was here. But in addition, we have not built. We are now in the process of building. Pardon me, it's been approved. It hasn't. I don't know if they've broken ground, but we are now building the first refinery since Carter. Where? Yet we've lost a few along the way. So we're asking more refining capacity of less refiners. And where Again, is that refinery? that increases costs. What? Where is that refinery? I forget where it is. I'll have to look it up. But uh, like That's I said, I, I, there, you know, I, I had been saying for years we haven't built a refinery since since. Uh, since Carter. We haven't built a refinery since Carter. And I recently read that they had approved construction on the first one. I don't remember where. Well, that's great. If anybody would like to call in with a question for Doug Edelman, our guest, you can call area code 347-677-1835 and Doug would be happy to take your questions. Doug, I've sure. got a and, question. And while, while, while we're at it, let's also mention the title of the book again, if you would. Sure. Restoring a Once Great Nation. And if you Google Subtitled it, you'll find it. it. Yeah, by Doug Edelman. Doug, um, thank you. Do you have a website? Um, well, I, I not, you mean specifically for the book? I do not, although there is a, uh, there is a, a uh, uh, Facebook page dedicated to it. Where's the movie trailer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think okay, it would play well, real well as a movie, frankly. <laughs> while we're talking about oil, I want to move into the Middle East. And here's a question I have for you. How was it possible for us to win World War II in four short years, and now we're going on ad infinitum with all these other Middle Eastern wars? What's up with that? We don't know uh, well, how to a, finish. Yeah, there's a no, there's a multiplicity of things involved in that. Number one is that in uh, World War II, for example, um, we had a clear anti- enemy, and we went out and we're we're bound and determined to crush them. And the heck with political correctness; they had it hadn't been invented yet. And basically, we we you know the the armed forces were allowed to do what they're invented to do, and that is kill people and break things. So they went over there and they did that until the the enemy uh, cried uncle. We don't do that anymore. But secondly, the, the in, in the Middle East being a totally separate animal, remember we are be dealing with people who are, you know, uh, 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 
have an ideological bent which encourages them to die for the cause. Well, when you have people who aren't afraid to die, <laughs> or, or who are who are eager to do so, it makes it a little bit more difficult to win. It also makes it a little more difficult to negotiate with people who basically, uh, you know, th- th- there is no negotiating with someone for whom there's there's a uh, there is no um, mutually beneficial middle ground. I I concur. I mean, we are in so you know, like I say, that's that's a whole other animal over there. And what we don't understand here in America is that number one, the conflict has gone on for thousands of years and will continue to go on till the end of time. Number two, the only thing that uh, shuts down radical Islam is a humiliating defeat. And we've only seen that a couple of times. But uh, after the Crusades, they shut up for a couple of hundred years. Uh, after Reagan rang Gaddafi's chimes a couple of times, he shut up for a de- couple of decades. You know, after Jefferson learned... shut down the uh, the Barbary pirates, they were quiet for a while. But they will always rear their heads when they think they have an advantage. And with our current administration, they most certainly see, if not an an, an advocate and an ally, at least somebody who's not going to be a, an effective adversary. Well, absolutely. I learned that lesson with my big brother. There was a day when I figured out if I want to get in a fight with him, I'm going to lose every time. (laughs) And so this is a lesson we all learned usually as children. But here's the question. I wrote a newsletter today, and I still continue to write every week. And if anybody would like to get it, you can sign up at my website, which is VoteCynthia.com, VoteCynthia.com, that's all it is. But my uh, newsletter today was talking about Sharia law, and a lot of people are aware that by now that uh, there are some states, and Missouri made number seven, that have passed laws saying we're not going to honor the Sharia laws because they're repugnant to our Constitution and it, it didn't say it in those words. I'm just summarizing without the political mm-hmm. correct niceties. But I'm sure my listeners didn't need me to just sit here and read the whole bill tonight. Nevertheless, um, mm-hmm. the, the surprise for me is, although a lot of people do respond to my newsletter with with support and encouragement, I got this from a constituent. He wrote, As a Christian, I take seriously the matter of bearing false witness to what is real and true. I'm certain that Jesus would not approve of your demoralization of the Muslims and fear-mongering about Sharia law being any kind of threat to our government or our culture. (laughs) Please know that it wasn't the Muslims who were behind the 9-11 and continuing cover-up. Let me guess. And uh, and then he ends by saying that you promulgate prejudices and work to bolster false beliefs, Ms. Davis. For this you should be ashamed and repentant. I'm quite certain that you and I serve different gods. And I, so I'm am I. Proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I'm you do that. have something you could agree with. 
<laughs> and you know, this is this is some people are just called the public office. And when I was in the legislature, I'd get more hate mail more frequently. But I do do get a charge out of it. I think Ann Coulter said it best when she said that when you encounter this, as the spittle is drying from your face, you will never feel more alive. <laughs> so we have to. I, I, I still go back to uh, Winston Churchill because the man could turn a phrase. And he, he said, you, you've made enemies? Good. It means that at some point in your life you stood up for something. Nice. Nice. <laughs> and that's what we're all called to do. We're called to engage in the fight. And if we're going to restore a once great nation, it behooves all of us to get involved, learn what's going on, and, and push back for the principles and values that we have always stood for as Americans. I think the part that's most disconcerting about this Sharia law is a lot of people don't realize that you're going to have to pick. The two are mutually exclusive. It's either the Constitution right. of the United States or it's some other non-principled way of you know, defying our Constitution. Mm -hmm. You, you know, can't you, you're doing damage days. to the Constitution when you diminish it, but you also do damage to the Constitution if you try to add to it. Mm -hmm. Yes, and when people learn the truth, they finally can be free to to pursue what what is it then that made America so great? How did we get great years ago, and and how are we killing ourselves now? Well, I think what, what made the, quote, greatest generation, unquote, although I, 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 I would not denigrate any of those who came before the, the World War II generation, but uh, the, one, the generation we refer to as the greatest generation, uh, they, first of all, remember, they came through, you know, the, the Depression, they saw hardship, they they understood individualism, pardon me, individualism, they understood self-reliance, they understood, uh, you know, uh, doing what was necessary uh, without asking for anything. I mean, uh, outside of the occasional soup kitchen, there wasn't a whole lot of relief in those days. You had what you worked for or what you found a way to obtain. And, uh, that builds character, I think, uh, and, and well, we saw a lot of character in that generation. In, uh, then they went, you know, and then they understood honor and duty and and right versus wrong. And when when we went to war, you know, you had kids lining up to en to enlist, not dodging the draft. Uh, it was a different time. It was different people, but uh, by the same token, we we have seen. The uh, the successing generation, successing succeeding generations, uh, become more and more narcissistic, more and more self-absorbed, and more and more what's in it for me, and they don't understand the concept of a higher purpose, a higher being, a higher law, a higher anything, because they themselves are the highest thing in their own minds. Well, you say in your book, after a decade of war, we still don't seem to know with whom or with what. This so-called well, war on terror is a misnomer. Yeah, well, you know, terror is a tactic, not an enemy. Mm -hmm. So I, even when Bush was using the term war on terror, I took exception. Uh, 
Well, we we need to name our air, our enemy. Uh, we are at war with those who are at war with us, and radical Islam is at war with us. And we need to acknowledge it. And we're too politically correct and too delicate to say so. But how can you how can you defeat an enemy if you can't even name him? Well, the, and it the the Muslims don't occupy one geographic country. So it's, I mean, at least with the Second World War, it was a little more clear. Even in the Vietnam War, we had a country. This war on terror right. is... Right, they don't, they don't is, wear a uniform. They don't constrain themselves to a language, to a border, uh, even to a culture. You know, even within within their own ranks, they have divisions. And yet, they are united in their hatred of us. And coming here, and you have a chapter on immigration and the Hispanic vote, and I'd like to ask you a few questions about this because this is a topic where during much of the analysis, the people trying to figure out why did the Republicans get clobbered, uh, a lot of them assumed it must be because we scared the Hispanic people into thinking we're going to deport them all, and that didn't seem nice. Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the illegals here don't have a legal right to vote, so it's not that, you know, that, that's not an issue. The, and the fear amongst the Republican, you know, the, the traditional Lindsey Graham-type GOP, is that by objecting to our borders being crashed by people who were not invited in, uh, that we are somehow offending their compatriots of the Hispanic uh, descent who did come here legally. And if, in point of fact, the opposite is true. If you talk to people who came here legally, they are offended by those who cut the line, by those who, yes, those who they are. crossed the border illegally. And in fact, they're also, you know, uh, they're also upset because they're competing for the jobs with people who yes. are, who will do it cheaper because they're not here legally. They are offended because, you know what, we I can't imagine how we got to be so lenient on saying let's give them all the freebies that the taxpayers worked hard for. That isn't getting us anywhere because a lot of immigrants mm-hmm. are coming from socialistic countries where they may mm-hmm. expect that you're supposed to be taken care of and so they don't understand our ethic and our way of life and well, re- remember that uh, from from the Democrats point of view these people are simply unre- you know undocumented Democrats right they they want the the uh the people who are coming here illegally because they 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 tend towards the lower end of this of of the economic strata they tend towards dependency and therefore they are right pickings for the De- democratic party interestingly those people who do come legally tend to be self-reliant people tend to be capable of success and therefore tend to, to, when they get here and when they stay here, they tend to uh, lean more heavily towards the GOP. That being the case, why do you think it's so difficult to come legally and so easy to come illegally? Why? 
because those in amongst the Democrat uh, uh, powers director see them as a you know uh, a built-in constituency, and they work to make it easy to not only get them here, but as you see, trying to. Uh, uh, first, get them uh, legal status, and secondly, get them citizenship. And they want to put a voter's registration card in their hand. Yes, and the goal should be assimilation to teach them the American way of life, to teach them our language, our customs. Well, again, if they if they if if if, if they encourage immigra- immigration of those who are uh, likely to become a benefit to our society who are going to be self-reliant, who are going to be contributing and and uh, successful and uh, and so forth. Uh, men, people who uh, uh, are not dependent on government, but people who are, uh, you know, like I said, self-reliant and, and uh, self-sufficient, those are the people who are going to be voting Democratic. Yeah, well, we don't have enough money to pay for everybody, and I think that's the question is if they want to contribute, and, uh, well, that's how this was when we started with inviting, send me your wretched masses yearning to be free. (laughs) Yes, but remember, they all came through Ellis Island and had their paperwork in order. The the wretched refuse. (laughs) I mean, what is... Why are we? What happened to that? That mentality. Well, you know, yearning to be free is different from yearning to receive freebies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so there were people, and we love the different cultures. I mean, there's nothing greater yeah. than going to Chinatown in San Francisco and and sure. going to the north and, end of Boston. And yeah, and I, I I refuse to accept the uh, the labels that 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 the Dems try to put on us as being anti-immigrant? No. We are pro-immigrant. We're anti-invasion. We're pro-legal immigration. We're anti-border crashing. That's good. We're, we're in favor of having rules. And if people are here breaking our rules by entering illegally, how are they going to have a clean conscience and feel good about anything right. else that they're how, going to do? How are we going to give the vote to somebody who did not respect our laws enough to, to honor our borders? Well, you know, that there are. A, what does Congress need to do to fix things? Is restoring the great nation up to us, or are there things that can happen legislatively? Well, the, 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 like, like I said, the purpose of the book is for us to understand what's going on so that we can then influence our legislators. Because the legislators, as a general rule, A, don't understand it themselves, B, are afraid to take a stand because they think that that anything is that 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 actually stands up for something is going to piss somebody off. <laughs> You're right because when I was in the legislature, if a bill came forward that would give more money or benefits to single mothers, it was just about guaranteed to pass because nobody of any party wanted to vote against the single mothers. I mean, that would be politically right. incorrect. You'd get a male piece against you real quick. So exactly. it didn't matter. <laughs> I mean, there were some bills that would come forth, and if they made it to the House floor, it wouldn't even matter what the party is. They're going to automatically p- 
pass. Most of the education rules right. were and, like and, that. And the, the left has become masters of titling their their legislation, you know, because if they give the, 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 the bill the right name, you can't vote against it, even if it's a horrible piece of, uh, of legislation. And, you know, what, what, again, getting back to the difference between a politician and a statesman, what we need are people who are willing to understand that uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge was right when he said, it is more important to kill bad legislation than to pass good. That's right. So let me ask you this, Doug. Are the people a reflection of government, or is government a reflection of the people? Both. <laughs> I, can, I don't think you, yeah, I, I don't think that one is absolutely causative and one is absolutely responsive. I think that both affect each other. Well, Todd Aiken was at an event that I was hosting, and he was giving a speech. This is a few years ago, and he said, Washington is messed up because the people are messed up who are <laughs> representing us, and the people mm-hmm. who are representing us are messed up because the voters are messed up. <laughs> I mean, that was well, a quick summary, but, you know, mm-hmm. if our values are to grow government bigger, then what else is there left to do, mm-hmm. and how can we restore the nation if we're all messed well, up? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. I think our single biggest problem today, bar none, is the, quote, low information voter. And therefore, I think the first place to start is to educate the voters. And I think that's the purpose of the book, and that's why I wrote it. Uh, like I say, there are those out there who are awake. This will motivate them. There are those out there who are asleep. This will awaken them. There are those out there who say, what can I do? This will give them a a, a road map of where to get started. So, uh, like I say, I I make no grandiose claims to be the answer, but it's a tool. It's great, and it's a great tool. I, I I will concur on the low information voters. I when I ran for Senate three years ago, my Republican challenger ended up uh, putting out a mail piece against me that said what a horrible person I am because I took all this money from the government. And he added up every paycheck I'd received since I was elected eight years mm-hmm. earlier. And right. and and that's how much money it made it sound like. Whoa! I took all this money from the taxpayers, but no, you took hey, your everyone, salary. Yeah, it just shows you how deceptive and how very dirty the process has become, and how unless people choose to inform and educate themselves, they're going to fall victim to reading malicious mail pieces, and then they're going to figure they're all lousy, and so why even bother to vote? But there is no Mm -hmm. substitute for becoming informed. That's why I'm glad you produced this. Thank you for being with us tonight. Absolutely. uh, Let me, let me, I know we're running out of time, so let me just say, uh, first of all, the book is available at Back to Basics. Back to Basics Christian Bookstore in O'Fallon, Missouri. Thanks, right. Doug, it's for also available us. online at, uh, at Amazon. It's also uh, at, at Books a Million. This it's also at, uh, of at, at Barnes & Noble. So look it up on, on, I'm on, uh, Davis on and hope you enjoyed our program. Please join us next week when we offer another infusion of truth, honesty, and solutions that will grow people bigger and shrink government smaller. Thank you for joining us. 
see you next week. out.